Greg Monroe on the run, up and throws it down! Wow! Hello everyone, welcome to the third episode of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. Uh, this is Matt Watson and I'm joined today by Sean Corp and Ben Gulker. Um, we are going to discuss a topic that's been on everyone's mind since the end of the season, Greg Monroe and the latest news about the negotiations or perhaps I should say lack of negotiations between he and the Pistons. So how are you guys doing guys? I was doing better before this Greg Monroe thing blew up. For context, uh, if you haven't seen the news, Vince Ellis of the Detroit Free Press basically broke the news today that the Pistons have upped their offer to Greg Monroe. Their original offer was in the range of uh, five years and $60 million, um, and now they've reportedly offered them something greater than the four-year $54 million deal that they gave Josh Smith last year. We don't know the exact number. Um, apparently, though, that was not good enough for Greg Monroe. And the most ominous part of this news is that, uh, as Vincella says, uh, negotiations right now are not ongoing. They're still at a standstill. Well, I think uh, there's two ways you could look at that. And it might not be terribly ominous because, I mean, basically if Greg Monroe and David Falk are largely satisfied that that deal's on the table, then there's no need to continue negotiating there might just be a need to make sure that no other team in the NBA is willing to basically better that offer through a sign-and-trade or an outright signing. So maybe they're just playing sort of the waiting game because there's, there's not a lot of urgency on either side to get it done because it's not really impacting the, their ability to d- make other moves because this is, this is essentially the last move of the offseason. Right. That's actually a good way of phrasing it. Uh, maybe ominous isn't the right word. Maybe they basically let it be known that they, they put their best offer on the table and it's basically take it or leave it right now for Monroe. So, you know, it's not like Vince did not report that there's any kind of timetable attached to this deal. The Pistons have been in the driver's seat the entire process. Uh, they have the right of first refusal if, by some big surprise, he's able to get a, uh, an offer sheet from another team that, that's to his liking. But still, it's it's a little uh, it's a it's just a little unsatisfying, right? Um, you go into the soft season, and Van Gundy from the get go said it's his biggest priority to bring him back, and they're they're basically putting their best foot forward. And as of right now, it's still not good enough. Uh, ben, what, what do you make of this situation? Well, I mean, the Pistons still sort of hold all the cards, right? I mean, the the threat the only leverage is the threat of the qualifying offer on the Monroe side of the table, right? So the odds of him doing that, I guess, are are the only thing to consider. And it, it seems as and there are several really smart guys in the comments who have articulated this over and over. If Greg Monroe takes the qualifying offer, he's leaving millions of dollars on the table that he's not gonna be able to recoup an unrestricted free agency next year. So I think the scenario that, that Sean just laid out is probably the most likely. If the Pistons are inching their offers up slowly, right? So if it, it started at five years, $60 million, now it's four years, $54 million, I think Falk and, and Monroe are probably pretty confident that offer's not going away. So now it's just a matter of is there a sign-in trade with an, an equivalent value that works somehow that hasn't yet been explored? Or is someone really, you know, after maybe the Kevin Love chip, fall or whatever is someone willing to offer him a max deal but I 
I still think the Pistons are holding the cards here. His restricted status gives them the leveraging advantage. And the only thing that makes me nervous is that the one little sentence, and we said this before the show, and the negotiations aren't ongoing. That's the only part that, to me, is a little bit troublesome. You know, and just to uh, for, for listeners who, who, who maybe aren't uh, good with numbers, uh, that's myself included, the difference <laughs> between five years and, and, and 60 million and four years and 54, we're basically saying the Pistons up their offer uh, from 12 million to 13 and a half. Obviously, it's two Monroe's advantage, I would think, if he's not completely satisfied with the situation, to, to want a shorter deal. Um, he'll be entering free agency. Uh, you know, you give up a little bit of security, but you'll be entering free agency a little bit earlier, uh, still in his prime. And also, you know, the salary cap, uh, by all accounts, is set to explode in about two years. So uh, another max deal then, or even something less than a max, you know, he, he'd be able to re-up for, for more. So that's basically the, you know, they basically upped it about a, a million and a half, uh, or at least a million and a half, because, right? Because Josh Smith has four years, 54 and they said that they're offering to make him uh, the highest-paid player in Pistons history, so it's something greater than that. Um, whether it's a nominal amount of you know thirteen point six, you know who knows. It's a really dangerous game for a player in Monroe's situation, where this is his first big contract to take the qualifying offer of five point five million instead of instead of signing the long-term deal. You don't. You see it every rare now and then, but you just you generally don't see players do that. Not for their first deal. Maybe for their second deal when the, when they're really uh, interested in, in being able to pick their spot a little bit more and they're looking to uh, uh, to finish their their career someplace. But you just don't see it happen early in the career. This is this is his his moment to to lock in a lot of security and a lot of money. It's a life changing amount of money for generations to come, and you just you generally don't see players walk away from that as frustrated as they are in the moment today with this particular team, I, I just I just can't see it happening. I don't I don't think the situation is so bad between Monroe and the Pistons that, that he would actually do that. Uh but but maybe I'm just kind of, you know, imagining what I would do in that situation. I just can't imagine myself walking away from that much money. Yeah, I would say the only flip side to think about in that situation is that this is also Monroe's first opportunity to have any say about where he spends the next several years of his career and I think maybe sometimes we who don't those of us who don't have those sort of contractual obligations maybe sometimes forget that so maybe he's thinking you know this is my this is the the chance for me to sign a contract for where I'm going to spend the you know my prime years of my career so different players are motivated by different things I think it's unlikely he leaves you know six seven eight million dollars on the table but if him being happy is more important to him than that amount of money, then, you know, maybe it's still a real threat. Well, and there's one other thing here, too, to think about, and that's, so, Matt, you hinted at the the new TV deal potentially having some pretty significant implications for the salary cap, and that's a great point. The other piece of the CBA that matters here is um, when you hit seven years as an NBA player, that's a, that's an important benchmark for you in terms of what you're eligible to make. So it might be that if if Greg isn't happy in Detroit, maybe a three-year deal is more up his alley, and maybe the Pistons have been pushing for four or five. I mean, again, there's been so little to come out from his from his side of things. There's been so little news from his side, but you know, I kind of thought maybe a three-year deal would be the deal he would sign because that puts him right at seven years when that, that contract comes up. It gives him three years to convince the rest of the league that he's really worth a big, huge max deal, which would be worth 
a whole lot more three years from now because of that seven-year status, and then also because the CB or the salary cap, excuse me, is set to explode. Right, and one of the things that we don't really know based on Ellis's report is sort of what the specific parameters are. So uh, we have the, you know, they wanted five years, $60 million, which is a huge number, but it's only, quote-unquote, only $12 million a year. So the new deal on the table is reportedly more on a per-year basis than Josh Smith is making, but we don't know if it's a similar five-year deal. I'd be sort of curious what the the deal length would be because they might even be willing to go that three years to sort of tell Monroe, fine, this sets you up, you know, nicely for exploiting free agency again and getting another huge deal and basically the best set of circumstances. So uh, I'd be curious whether it's a three-year deal, a four-year deal, or a five-year deal. Yeah, that's actually a good point. And to be to be perfectly honest, um, when I heard that the, the they were offering a deal that was better than Smith's deal, I automatically framed it as a four year deal. But but that's not actually what Vince Ellis is reporting. He's ha- he's just saying that it's a better deal. Um, right. So you know, obviously we're talking about it on a per year basis, but we still don't know the length. You know, one thing. So Ben, you mentioned that you know perhaps uh, Monroe is, is is pushing for a three year deal or something like that. The one thing that I'm have to wonder is if he's so unsure about the situation in Detroit, the rumors, you know, nothing concrete, but the rumors are that he, that he doesn't want to play with Josh Smith. You know, he, tr- he tried to um, shoot down those rumors with some tweets uh, when that news first broke earlier this summer. But that that's the rumor, and that seems to be like this consensus that, that people have repeated enough times that I think everyone's just kind of accepting it as fact for, for better or worse. If that's actually the case, and if he's nervous about how he fits with these other two big men in Detroit um, and how it might impact his value, would you know would he accept that three-year deal, or would he actually want to just take the longer deal, you know, worrying that if he continues to play with, with these other two players, it's just going to restrict his, his earning potential down the road? I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. But, yeah, it'll just be really interesting to see. And I, and I also wonder how fans would react to him signing – say, uh, a three-year deal or anything less than the maximum of five years, which they can offer. I think fans would probably be glad it's basically over with, even if it was a one-year deal at this point. I think there's a large contingent of fans that are very skeptical about Monroe. So uh, if he was to set settle for less years, I think it probably would bother them less because, I mean... As a pro Monroe guy myself, I think the longer they can lock him up, the smarter the deal is pretty much no matter what because if he is signed for three years and when those three years are up, he's solidified his place in Detroit as far as importance to the team, he's going to be much, much more expensive because the next CBA or the next, uh, you know, the salary cap environment then is going to mean he's going to make way more than the 13.6 or whatever million dollars they're offering to pay him now. All right, well, here's a question for you guys. So we're we're framing this discussion as basically take this long-term deal that the Pistons have put on the table or go back to the threat of signing the qualifying offer of 5.5 and becoming an unrestricted free agent next year. Now, is there, and my colleague, uh, my SP Nation colleague Tom Ziller suggested, suggested this this morning, 
should the Pistons instead try to do something? If there is a stalemate and they realize this isn't going to happen, rather than having him sign for 5.5, should they do something perhaps as a sign of goodwill of signing him to a one-year $10 million? You're basically giving him extra money that you don't have to give. But maybe you, he, at least then he'd be coming back not with a bitter taste in his mouth that he's leaving so much on the table. Is that something that maybe sounds good from a fan's perspective, but – when it comes down to business sense, there's no way that uh, that Stan Van Gundy or Tom Gores would, would go for that, or, or, or some, is there something to that? I think <laughs> the risk, I mean, the risk then, there's so, like, especially what we've just seen with, you know, Paul George's injury, for a player to sign a one-year deal in Monroe's situation, there's just so much risk. It would seem to me, from his perspective, I'm him. I don't want a one-year contract any more than the Pistons want to have me on a one-year contract. I want to get guaranteed money because, you know, as you were saying, it's his first first opportunity to have a big contract. So, you know, yeah, maybe that sounds nice, but, man, if I'm Greg Monroe, I don't want anything, anything like a one-year contract. I want something with a little more stability. Um, because, you know, one freak play is all it takes. <laughs> and from my perspective, one thing I haven't been able to lock down today, and I've been trying to figure it out all day, and it involves reading the arcane language in the CBA, uh, is if he signed a one-year deal, the only advantage that I could see from the Pistons' perspective more than just having goodwill is... Uh, the ability to trade him to a team and uh, have that team that trades for him retain his bird rights. And this is very arcane CBA stuff, so hopefully people's eyes don't glaze over, but uh, what it comes down to is this. As I read the CBA, if he signs his qualifying offer for $5.5 million, then a team can't when he's traded, let's say the team decides to trade him because he doesn't want to be here and there's no long-term future, so instead of losing him for nothing, they decide they want to trade him. If they trade him under the qualifying offer, then the team that gets him doesn't have his bird rights, which means that they couldn't re-sign him. Above, they couldn't go above the salary cap to re-sign him. And what why that's important is it greatly limits the appeal league-wide of trading for a player like Monroe because there's only so many teams that would be set to have enough salary cap space to give him a big enough deal to keep him beyond next season. But if if it's the case, and I think it might be that if the Pistons come to a one-year agreement with him, then if they traded him, his bird rights would transfer to his new team. And that means a team like uh, basically any team, like the Spurs, the Clippers, the Thunder, anybody that's well-positioned but way over the salary cap, they could trade for him and still go over the salary cap to re-sign him. And that that obviously greatly expands his market. Yeah, it, it that's actually a good point then. Um, you know, like you said, like the I'm not uh, completely well versed in all of the the intricacies of the CBA, but if they do sign to something that that's more than the qualifying offer, and if that is the case, then you're right. The market for him is much bigger. It, it puts him in a better position, and he would still have, while not um, official veto power over a trade, 
he would basically have the ability like uh, what, what Kevin Love is in right now, where uh, teams would not be willing to accept him in a trade unless he, they get assurances that, yes, he's going to resign there. So uh, you know, maybe there's something to that. Maybe, maybe he you know, settles for a one-year deal in hopes of being able to position himself to leave via trade and be able to pick his team like that. But, I mean, even if you do that, gosh, I can't get that image of Paul George uh, from last weekend out of my head. Like, fluke injuries, they do happen. Like, they're, they're fluke injuries, but they do happen, and you're leaving tens and tens of millions of dollars on the table if you don't sign for, for more than one year. Right. I mean, there's hostility with restricted free agents basically every offseason, and there's a reason that nobody signs their qualifying offer. It's just, it doesn't make financial sense. And so... I mean, I went into the off season. Even the initial rumors about him willing to sign the qualifying offer, I thought it was like maybe a one percent or a five percent possibility. I think I was getting a little uncomfortable when there were uh, more rumblings about you know trade demands, or especially when the, there were reports that the Pistons were actively trying to find a sign and trade home for him. Then I got a little more worried about possibly him settling for that little amount of money but with this latest news about you know 13.5 million plus per year on the table i think that just makes the chances he signs the qualifying offer infinitesimal all right uh, you guys are 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 smarter than i am let me ask you a question what is the max salary uh on a per year basis that he's seeking I'm, I'm curious how close we are. Like, okay, what's the, so what's the gap here that we're talking about? For it would be 25 percent of the cap, and so his starting salary in 2014 would be 14.7 million dollars, and they're basically at a place where they could pay him 13.5 million plus. Now that's uh, that might not be year one, but it might be. I don't know. The the deal they gave Smith was a consistent thirteen point five from year one through year four, so there's no escalators. Uh, a a big thing with these you know extensions and post rookie contracts is the escalators allowable. I mean, you're still talking even though you're talking only about a one million dollar plus difference in year one. It amounts to a lot of money over five years if if he's not getting the quote-unquote max and he's settling for $13.6 million a year. Right, yeah, because the, the, it escalates every single year. It's the, the power of compound interest, kids. So, <laughs> all right, well, let's, let's just assume for a moment. Let's assume that whatever the, the, this new long-term deal uh, that they put on the table, whatever it is, the, the one that starts at 13.5 and, and goes up, let's assume that he takes that, right? And he, and he takes and he, and he signs for, for you know, at least three or four years. What do you think that means in terms of what the Pistons are going to do next, specifically Josh Smith? Do you believe the rumors that, that he basically has an ultimatum, that he doesn't want to play with Smith? Ultimatum is probably not the most fair word, but you know, do you believe the rumors that, that it's his preference not to play on that play with him, or, or do you do you think that if he just takes the money, that is, you know, at that point he'll just be content, he'll just play hard, no matter what the, the makeup of the team is? Well, so my read on Greg Monroe is that he's generally a good guy, 
who generally plays hard and works hard. And he has not had a single season with Detroit where things have really gone his way, so <laughs> to speak. So, I don't know. To me, I, I, I totally and completely buy that he doesn't want to play with Josh Smith. I, I can't imagine any young power forward in their right mind wanting to play with Josh Smith at this point in their careers. But I'm skeptical of this idea that, you know, he's laid down this ultimatum because that's just not in character with what we as fans have seen from Greg Monroe. That's not the way he plays. That's not the way he conducts himself in the media. I, I mean, I can totally see, yeah, I don't want to play with Josh Smith. I can totally see that coming up in negotiations. But... I'm pretty skeptical that there's any sort of ultimatum on the table, personally. Yeah, my take is that it's less of an ultimatum and more of, why do I want to be back with your team for five years when you have Josh Smith? It doesn't make sense. We saw how it worked last year. And to me, that's a far cry from an ultimatum. Yeah, no, that's true. Like I said, ultimatum is probably not the most fair word. And I also wouldn't be surprised if if this sentiment... Uh, is actually not coming from his mouth, but it's coming from from his agent. You know, D- David Falk. He, he's the one steering the ship here, and he obviously he's had a lot of success as an agent. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if if he's the one basically saying like, "Hey, my client doesn't want to play with him. What's he going to be able to do in his next deal if he's you know going to be playing? He, he's one of three guys instead of the big guy on a team. So yeah, I mean, I think. Everything that we've seen from Josh Smith, it just doesn't seem to fit his personality that, that he, he draws a line in the sand like that. You mean Greg Monroe? Yeah, Greg Monroe. See, oh, look, see? <laughs> that, that's why it's so important. Oh, man. So, yeah. I'm kind of curious. Uh, your guys' perspective on sort of the psychological aspects of, let's say, you know, Josh Smith makes $13.5 million. If Greg Monroe makes... $13.5 million plus $1, does that does that have any cachet in the locker room or, you know, in the organization? Do you think that's psychologically an important factor to Greg Monroe? I wouldn't be surprised if it is. I, I, and and not, that's not just dependent on Monroe, but I think that's just part of human nature. Everyone wants to feel wanted and everyone wants to feel like they're the most important person in the room. You know, when the Pistons made such a big commitment to Smith, I think from from day one, Monroe probably had, at least in the back of his mind, okay, I wonder what kind of commitment they're going to make me. And then down the road, Andre Drummond, you know, the most, uh, by all accounts, carefree, fun-loving guy, never have a problem, hardworking, works great with coaches. In the back of his mind, just like in the back of everybody else's, I imagine he's thinking the same thing. It's like, okay, when it's my turn, I want the most. Um, and I don't begrudge anybody for thinking that. I, I would think the same way. If, if I had, uh, if, if my bosses came to me and said, do you want to be the, the highest paid person in the office? I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. I think the one advantage that people like you and, 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 uh, and me have is we don't all necessarily know our coworkers' salaries, right? And I'm glad we don't. <laughs> because it's just got to be an extremely awkward situation when – you know, if you can look at everyone in the room and you know how much they're making, I mean, just imagine like the the amount of frustration that it must have when, when you know, a player is kind of slacking off, or if a player is clearly the reason why a team is struggling. And in the back of your head, you think, yeah, but that team, you know, the team's paying them so much more than they're paying me. You know, what gives? So yeah, I think I honestly, I think that's just human nature. I, I don't I don't pin that on on 
you know, being selfish or, or being greedy. You know, when you start talking about these, the numbers, when they get so big and, and your average uh, fan can't even relate to the, uh, to the salary, it's really easy to kind of project these thoughts of like, you know, how could you ever turn down X amount of dollars? But it's just, it's not even, you get to a point, like, what could you, what can you buy with 13.6 million that you can't buy with 13.4? There's, you know what I'm saying? There's nothing, right? Like, you have a thirteen point six million dollar car. Well, you can finance the rest. Like you can, you can do it. Like my point is that <laughs> it doesn't change your lifestyle. Like if you're living a lifestyle where you make greater than ten million a year, that's the lifestyle you live. Like I don't think it necessarily increases. Yeah, I think Matt, you're onto something. I don't think you know. Like I said, the read that I think we fans get from Greg Monroe is not that he's a proud guy. He's not a prima donna. He's a hard worker. He humble. He's a humble guy, but. I could cert- I'm certainly sympathetic to the idea that the dollar amount of a, a contract on a yearly basis says something about the franchise's commitment to a player. And I could see that being more important than the actual dollar amount, right? So for, for Van Gundy and company, sort of this new regime, to offer Greg Monroe $13.6 million a year, I could see that not in terms of dollars and cents making a difference, but in terms of the fact that the franchise was willing to commit to him, I could see that being important because I, I think you're right. If I'm, if I'm Greg Monroe a year ago, I'm wondering what the heck is going on when, when Josh Smith is signed to be the highest played, paid player in franchise history on an annual basis. So I think from the, that perspective, that actually makes a whole lot of sense. But at the same time, I, and I, I agree with what you guys are saying but at the same time i don't think the you know the contract number influences the system that stan van gundy is gonna play especially because you know he's the front office and the coach so one's not going to dictate the other so i mean in my head i would and this is all speculation but i imagine considering monroe was the first person he called when he got the job and you know, the first pitch he made, I assume that pitch was, you're the starting power forward, you're playing next to Drummond, we're going to do build a lot of our offense around your, you know, back-to-the-basket game and, and your passing ability, et cetera, et cetera. You, you know, logically, that should have said more to Monroe than, we're going to make you slightly higher paid than Smith, but I, I think, Matt, you're right, there's just something psychological or or even within the team itself, as far as how they view Greg Monroe, sort of in the pecking order of whose team is this? Right. Well, I, you know, I think it all comes down to competition. I, that competitive nature is the one thing that every single professional athlete has probably a hundred times more than, the, than your average guy who wasn't willing to put in the work or... Um, you know, the, obviously, natural talent is is it plays a, an enormous part in it. But that that competitive nature, right? Like that that not wanting to lose. Um, you know, it, salaries. It's just another statistic, right? Like everyone wants the best statistic. Like it's it's a you want the you want the highest score. And I think it comes down to like, you know, whether or not you know, picture uh, a, a player at the end of a game. Say the game's already decided. You know, say the Pistons are. Um, that they're ahead by 20, they're going to win no matter what, and there's five minutes left. But 
let's say, you know, Andre Drummond has a chance to break uh, the franchise single game rebounding record, right? Like, fans are going to be cheering for him to get that record, right? Like, fans are going to be disappointed if the coach pulls him out. And, and you like to think that Andre Drummond, on some level, uh, that he wants to get it. Uh, and it comes down to, like, it's not necessarily even winning or losing the game. It's just, like, having that, that competitive nature of, like, I want the best stats. Um, and, and, and sorry, but speaking of sort of that competitive nature, I think maybe what sort of has put Monroe in the mindset he's in more than simply the team signing Josh Smith was in the horror show that played out last year, Monroe was basically the odd man out of the three when it really mattered down the stretch in the fourth quarter. The same fourth quarters that saw the Pistons give away like a zillion leads and they were by far the worst team in the NBA. But he was the one that had to give up his spot on the floor so that they could actually do two traditional bigs and three shooters. And I think that's probably more than anything what has Monroe wishing he could be somewhere else. And that's that's sort of the damage that Van Gundy has to probably repair more than anything. That's a really good point. Yeah, it's an excellent point. And I'm glad you brought that up in the piece that you wrote because it's one that's easy to forget about in the horror show that was last season is just how often... Greg Monroe would be riding the pine as the Pistons squandered a fourth quarter. And, you know, from from the fans' chairs, it looked so obvious what needed to be done, and that was to replace Josh Smith with Greg Monroe. And you'd have to think that from from his perspective, sitting on the bench, things looked very similar. I mean, he's got to be itching, as you said, Matt. You don't get to the NBA without a pretty serious competitive drive. He's got to want to have that opportunity. Um, and so, it, yeah, critical point, I think. And if you look at his stats, I mean, 2012 to 2013, he played technically three more minutes last year than he did the year before. He scored only a slightly less points. He only had slightly less rebounds. But I think if you asked him his experience from one year to the next, last year was much worse from his, from his perspective than the year before. And I think it it largely would have to do with how those fourth quarters were handled. Again, baseless, baseless speculation on my part. Totally trying to get into somebody's head that I've never really met more than five seconds, but... No, I, I, I think everything that you're saying is... You know, there's there's a lot of truth to it. It, it just makes perfect sense. Um, and on a and actually on a per game basis, he actually averaged slightly less minutes last year. So, you know, at this stage in his career, he probably doesn't appreciate uh, already being relegated to a, to a lesser role. But yeah, we'll 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 have to see we'll have to see what happens. Um, you know, I said this before, but like I I can't fathom. I personally can't fathom leaving that much money on the table. That's a that's a lot of money to walk away from, especially when you're talking about the difference of. Yeah, I hate to use the word only, but when you're talking about the difference of only less than than two million a year, you know, one point five or something, the difference between what they're reportedly offering and and what the max deal is, you know, and I know it escalates, but I mean, still, that's that that is maybe this is just me coming from a position of I'm I'm not going to earn that much in a year, <laughs> so. 
I, I can't fathom. It's hard for me to put myself in his shoes, but... So, right. a gun to your head. What, what, how do you think this plays out? I mean, I guess first, personally, what do you think the odds are that he signs a qualifying offer? And then second, what do you think... Let's say he comes back to Detroit. What does his contract look like? I think he takes... I think he takes the deal that uh, Vincelis reported today. The Pistons have no reason to take that off the table. They're they're certainly not looking at other players. I think he ends up taking that. I, it, you just my own personal uh, my own inability to to wrap my head around leaving that much money on the table aside. You you don't see it happen in the NBA. You just don't. So unless there is some kind of highly unusual um, situation where the Pistons decide to to offer him more than the qualifying offer on a one-year deal, and, that, and that's what he would prefer to a long-term deal. You know, I would put those odds at probably less than 5%, and I would probably say, well, I guess it's only 95%. That's the only <laughs> – the rest of it. I I think he's coming back on a, on a multi-year deal, and I think it'll be two months into the season we'll all forget what a weird headache this was, and, and all the fans will forgive him. The one thing that I will say is weird – and. And the reason why I asked about fan reaction um, earlier was I'm generally pro Monroe. Uh, and I know that, that we get accused on Detroit Bad Boys and some of the articles that we write. It just so happens that a lot of our writers happen to have the same mentality, right? There's a couple of the commenters that they call it the hive mind, you know. And that's not intentional. You know, we certainly welcome opposing viewpoints, but. We're all pro Monroe, but I, I am shocked at some of the negativity and some of the comments on Detroit Bad Boys. And then whenever we, we post any of this type of stuff on Facebook, too, about you know the ongoing drama, I'm just really shocked at the immediate reaction that some people have of, of automatically saying, like, ship him out of town, he doesn't want to be here, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's just uh, it, it, it's kind of surprising to me how fickle the fans are and how quick they are. Uh, to to make a decision on this or to voice their opinion on this when this is really a pretty routine negotiation for a restricted free agent in his shoes. When it's not a guy who's a slam dunk automatic max guy, it's pretty routine for these for for players in his shoes to go through this long drawn out process and and having to settle for something that they didn't necessarily want. And and at least for Monroe, the gulf between what the team is offering and what he's seeking. It's a lot different than what's going on in Phoenix with Eric Bledsoe. Uh, the Suns reportedly offered something in the neighborhood of forty-eight million, and he's looking for eighty-four. So, I mean, that's that is a huge golf that I don't see them being able to uh, come back from or find a middle ground. I think that is far more likely to result in him signing, uh, and I'm talking about Bledsoe and Bledsoe signing, uh, whether it's for the qualifying offer or, or, or some other form of a one-year deal. But I think that Monroe and the Pistons, they're they're just too close. They're too close on a per year basis for what they're allowed to offer and what he's seeking, uh, and w- w- what they are reportedly offering. I did. I don't. I don't see a, a, a divorce happening over that over that golf. To your point about the fans, I just checked our our feed based on this uh, Monroe story. Some of it's pretty ugly, including I will protect the name, but. Uh, can we? Can the Pistons just sign and trade Moose already? Just thinking about his defense next to sixty million dollars gives me a headache. I'd rather watch Smooth shoot Jays. Ooh, yeah, yeah, that is that is too far. <laughs> it is. 
it's it's irrational. I think I think fans are taking it personally. Uh, you made the point earlier about this is the first time in his career where he's able to dictate where he wants to spend several years in a row. And, you know, I, I can see for maybe part of the reason it's hard for fans to to accept the fact that they might want to go elsewhere is because, by and large, most Pistons fans either live in, in Michigan or have spent part of their life there or have some kind of connection with Michigan. So maybe it's insulting on some level to think, like, what, our state isn't good enough for you? But... No, like I, this is like a routine negotiation. Like this, this happens in the NBA. You know, there's nothing strange about this. It's frustrating and it's unfortunate that it's happening right now with the Pistons. But like, I at the end of the day, I think it's it is just a business. You know, I I won't begrudge anybody for trying to dictate their own future. Exactly. Anyone who's ever gone job hunting or tried to negotiate a salary doesn't really have any right to be too upset by this. This is. This is routine business for the NBA, and it's just routine business in general. It's yeah, it's nothing to be upset about. I think what's interesting about Monroe, in terms of the fans being so polarized about him, is that I think it's a real it's a real interesting case study in people who really emphasize sort of the eye test versus people who really sort of stress you got to dig deeper and use statistics. Because truly, when you watch Greg Monroe play. He he's not a thing of beauty on the basketball court. I mean, a lot of his buckets are kind of ugly. They're, you know, a sort of a weird-looking sweeping hook or a putback. He doesn't jump real high. He doesn't look like he's a great defender. But then when you dig a little deeper, you see, well, he, he really is sort of – he's an adequate defender. He's not a bad defender at all. Some things he's not so good at. And then offensively, he's really pretty good. So I think part of the reason he's so polarizing is because – when you watch him play, it's it can be kind of ugly at times, but at the end of the day, he really he does produce some pretty good results. My two cents on that, and I think probably the defensive part of that is the bigger one. Um, you know, he doesn't he doesn't get way up above the rim the way an Andre Drummond or a Josh Smith does, and so people automatically assume that he's somehow a liability because he's also a big man. From my perspective, it's um it's sort of you know fans watch these things through filters you know they they want shortcuts to try and figure out what how to interpret what they're watching so you know one thing is josh smith highest paid player josh smith known for his you know blocks and his defense and josh smith is coming off several playoff appearances so he's added to the team then the team totally craps the bed and what what do you see on the floor nothing but blown defensive assignments and rotations now if you watch really closely there's a lot of players that you know played into that bad defense but if you're casually watching you just kind of figure out well it's not drummond because he's you know a great rebounder a great he can block shots and it's not smith because you know he's known for his defense so where's the problem oh it's got to be monroe what has he ever won he doesn't do anything, you know, he doesn't block shots. And the way they used him, he was often way out of position. You know, he was part of the problem on defense. But I think that a lot of fans ascribe a lot of the defensive shortcomings squarely on Monroe, Monroe because sort of it's really complicated just how dysfunctional and messed up the whole team defense was. And it's also yeah, it's really- a bit of a scapegoat. Yeah, I agree. 
Yeah, it's absolutely a scapegoat because it's really difficult to pin team defense down on a single player. Like, Drummond has a lot of physical skills, and he can block shots, but he's not a plus defender at this stage in his career. He's just not. Like, he, like Drummond, has, he, has, he certainly has the tools to be someday. And, I, and he's 20 years old. I wouldn't expect him to be. But he's not, like, this premier defender that a lot of fans make him out to be just because he has the capability of blocking shots and, and, and doing things like that. Um, a lot of it comes down to, you know, the, the perimeter defense of having guys like Brandon Jennings just letting guys waltz right into the lane. Like, it, it just makes it difficult for... Uh, for all of the big men to be able to react and, and adequately defend. And, you know, the, the last person in the frame uh, b- before the, the other guy scores, like, it, it, he may look like he's the responsible guy, but, like, what your casual fan just watching on TV doesn't necessarily realize is that there is a breakdown that involved three or four different players. It wasn't just the one guy who happens to be closest when a bucket scored. Right, um, and I will say that they they used Monroe particularly poorly in that defense because as I've complained about often he was asked to show really hard on pick and rolls all the way out past the three point line and then try and recover that's just not his game and when there's other defensive breakdowns happening on the floor that means that he or another big man was probably really late on his rotation or his assignment and so you're going to blame those big men for when these guys are inevitably scoring easy buckets, which they did all the time last year. So I, I'm excited to see how a Stan Van Gundy team installs a defense that can, you know, utilize these players and put them in position to succeed. And I think that'll go hopefully a long way in re- rehabilitating the defensive image of and teaching, you know, better defensive principles to players like Monroe and Drummond. I think Van Gundy will make a far greater impact than people are giving him credit for right now. Um, his teams have traditionally been very strong defensively, and he knows how to coach defense, and he knows how to demand uh, that players play defense, whereas there is no accountability last year. The entire season, Mo Cheeks, John Lawyer, there hasn't been accountability. There hasn't really been accountability on defense since, I guess you can go all the way down to Larry Brown, right? It's been a long time since the Pistons have, have since Pistons fans have been um, been able to witness what a, a truly talented, well coached defensive team looks like, and you know whether they're they're going to take a step in that direction this year. I don't know if they'll be a plus defensive team or not this year, but they're going to they're going to take a big step in that direction this year. Yeah, I think I think a lot is in the hands of the coach. I mean, this isn't like baseball where a coach doesn't matter. All right, so one of the things that uh, Vincelis mentioned, and one of the things that, that we've heard a few times this year is that the, the Pistons have been willing um, to help Monroe find potential sign-and-trade options. And we haven't really talked about that as um, a, a possibility that, that might still happen this summer, perhaps because you know all of the talks so far have obviously fizzled out. There was the, uh, the Blazers reportedly were talking, but then they went and found their big man. The, there was apparently talks between uh the the Suns and, and the hawks um but those obviously haven't materialized anything is that still a possibility uh in your eyes do you think that that third option that we're not really talking about do you think that that might still happen this summer 
I think it's t- completely on the table, but it's just so hard to speculate what those teams might be because it's there's not that many teams that have glaring holes that could use Monroe. And at the same side, whatever teams are out there, they need to be willing to have something to give back to Detroit. And I think one thing Detroit's proven is that they're not going to sell them for 50 cents on the dollar. It's going to take us, you know, a significant return. So I I know it's been fun to speculate about the Hawks, who seem like they might be willing to pair Monroe with uh, Horford. And, you know, how does Millsap fit? How does Corver fit? What else could you get? What would they be willing to give up? But it's just there's so many moving parts in a trade like that that it, it's hard to speculate. Yeah, I don't see who's left on the table. You know, you look at the teams who might want want Greg Monroe, and you just have to ask, well, what, what are they willing to get up, give up that the Pistons would want? And that's where it gets really challenging. There are lots of teams who would love to add Greg Monroe, sure, but for what? For what and what do the Pistons need in return? And that's where I think it gets tricky. It's just really hard to. I mean, you can play. You can sit at the trade machine and play for hours and really struggle to find something that's viable and that makes any sort of sense for anybody. So, I think that's probably the least likely of the options. I would. I would not be surprised if Greg signs a qualifying offer before he gets signed and traded personally. And 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 where would you peg the odds of of him signing the the QO versus him accepting uh, a long term deal from Detroit? Like, what, I think he's going to be back in Detroit. I think that's all but a foregone conclusion. I think it's just a matter of how many years. But I wouldn't be surprised it... to see three three years with some sort of option or maybe maybe a four-year deal with a player option in the fourth year or something along those lines. I, 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 just, I think that's the most likely outcome by quite a bit. You know, one thing, um, you know, we talked about this a little bit before the show, and, and we've certainly mentioned it in a handful of articles uh, on Detroit Bad Boys before signing the qualifying offer, signing a one-year deal, and becoming an unrestricted free agent next year, he might have a similar problem next year. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Not you know, certainly more teams would be interested uh, because they could make an offer without the fear that the Pistons would just uh, match it. But a short list of people who are unrestricted. Uh, candidates last year, and, and I'm relying on, on some numbers here from Kevin Pelton from ESPN, uh, potential max candidates uh, for next year. Kevin Love, DeAndre Jordan, LaMarcus Aldridge, Tim Duncan, Goran Dragic, Marcus All. Take some of those guys out of the equation. Kevin Love, if he gets traded, he'll probably resign with Cleveland. Um, but you're going to be going up against guys like DeAndre Jordan. He's obviously a, a true center. He's, he's a defensive anchor. He's your traditional... Uh, plays above the rim, okay, Monroe doesn't necessarily compare favorably to that compared to a guy like Aldridge. Well, he is that stretch for, right? Like, he, he is that guy who's, uh, he doesn't necessarily have to play above the rim, but he has that mid-range, uh, that mid-range game. So he doesn't necessarily compare well with that. And we can probably take Tim Duncan off the table. He'll stay in the San Antonio forever. Uh, Marcus Gasol, another, he doesn't play above the rim, um, and he, he's, he's similar to Monroe in that he, he's, you know, not the most athletic-looking guy on the court, but he's a traditional center, and and you can build a team around that, or at least that's the the reputation. Um, the, like those are other guys that they're going to be in high demand, not just from the their own teams, but from every other team. And I could easily see those players being higher on 
on, on, on the pecking order for, for every team in the league in, in terms of looking for a big man. So once again, you're going to be – Greg Monroe would find himself in a situation where he's the, the fifth or sixth or seventh option among big men. Um, I, the, and, and even below those guys, you have guys like Kevin Fareed – or Kenneth Fareed from Denver and uh, Vucevic from Orlando who are these you know younger – big men who have, you know, perceivably they they have a little more upside and they haven't hit their prime yet. And that's kind of the sweet spot Monroe is trying to fill. And so, you know, it's just more big men to the list of guys he's competing with. Yeah, and, and, and then guys by all accounts aren't as talented but are maybe uh, more bang for the buck in terms of signing them for cheaper and they'll outperform their contract. You have guys like... Uh, Robin Lopez, Amir Johnson, um, Tyson Chandler, Paul Millsap. You know, depending on what stage, uh, you know, those guys are obviously, some of those guys are are at later stages in their career, but but depending on what stage of of a team is in, in terms of contending, you know, if you're a contender and you're just looking for someone to to plug in the middle, um, you know, you you can take a flyer on a guy like Chandler. You can take a flyer on, you know, I didn't even mention Al Jefferson. You can... You know, you can sign those guys, and you might not be able to build a team around them for the next decade, but you'll certainly be able to get a good, you know, two or three years uh, out of them. And if and if you're a contender and you need a big man to put you over the top, maybe signing one of those guys to a smaller deal and then using the extra money that it would cost to sign Monroe uh, at other positions might be more attractive. So, I mean, that's basically like a really long-winded way of saying it's not getting easier. Next next summer is not like the magic. The, like the magic solution to Monroe's problems. It's not like the, the pasture is, is that much greener. So so let's flip that a little bit and think about it from the Pistons' perspective. So, I mean, let's say worse comes to worse and inexplicably Greg Monroe signs his one-year qualifying offer and becomes an unrestricted free agent next year. There is sort of one advantage to that from the Pistons' perspective hypothetically, and this has sort of played out in discussions about what do you trade Josh Smith for? Well, if you can sort of get money off the books, it sets the team up nicely for next year because, uh, so let's say Josh Smith is still here, but Monroe's not. The Pistons have essentially like $20 million in cap space that they can spend right before Andre Drummond gets super expensive. So kind of going off that same list, where do you think the Pistons would try and sort of spend that money? You know, I don't think it's automatic anymore that Monroe would be the number one option, right? Like he's, you're obviously familiar with him, but if you're, if you're looking ahead to next year, you know, and, and you have to decide between Monroe or a player who's, I think Monroe is, a, he's a very talented young player and you don't want to let talent like that go away for free. But if that's your only other option, say he is going to go away or he could potentially go away for free. Do you still lock up that type of talent, or do you try to find a player who's more tailor-fit to uh, the type of offense that Van Gundy wants, um, who's tailor-fit to playing next to uh, next to Drummond, someone who's you know the prototypical stretch four that 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 player that Josh Smith thinks he is? Um, <laughs> you know, do you go after a player who's you know we can talk all day long about whether or not Monroe fits next to Drummond. But we all agree he's not the perfect fit. Like we think he can fit, and we think he does fit to in the right system. But is he the perfect fit? 
I don't think so. You know, maybe right. you go after a player who who is the perfect fit. So some of the and you know maybe you don't explore just upgrades at power forward necessarily, but I'm kind of just eyeballing the list of who's going to be available. Uh, LaMarcus Aldridge, I don't think he's going to leave, and I'm not necessarily sure he fits great, even though he's got, you know, a stretch element to his game. He's just kind of older and not super efficient. But Goran Dragic, I mean, I think we can agree that the point guard position is unsettled in Detroit on a long-term basis. Uh, Kawhi Leonard, I doubt he leaves the Spurs, but if you have max money available... Do you throw a bunch of that at him and make, you know, San Antonio match or not match? Uh, Clay Thompson and Golden State. Let's see. There's Reggie Jackson and Oklahoma City. Who else is available here? Uh, Amir Johnson. He's kind of got a pick-and-pop element to his game, though he's not a true stretch player. Uh, Thaddeus Young is going to be available. Al Jefferson, Paul Millsap, uh, Wesley Matthews could be a, a small forward option. So, I mean, there's guys out there that obvi- obviously fit sort of the profile of the kind of players the Pistons might be looking to add in the next year or so. Can you imagine, I mean, just in a world of make-believe of, of fantasy basketball, can you imagine what uh, a starting five that includes Andre Drummond and Kawhi Leonard? Like, that would be that'd be incredible. That'd be, that would be so insanely, so insanely fun. Can you imagine if the Pistons did the right thing and drafted Kawhi Leonard when they had the <laughs> chance to do it? Can you yeah. imagine if they had drafted anyone other than Brandon Knight? <sighs> oh well. <laughs> also, Patrick Beverly will be a restricted free agent. He is uh, quite the point guard in. Houston, and he's you know super defender, developing offensive game. He'd be a fun fit too. Uh, very hard nosed player. He'd certainly fix the defensive uh, problems that we have right now at point guard. You know, I'm still you know I don't want to look too far ahead to point guard. I'm I'm still really high in Dinwiddie. You know, probably higher than I should be on a guy drafted in the second round. But you know, the, the quote unquote first round talent I think is still there. So I'm really curious to see what he could do. But but man, like I Ben, you. You hit it like that Brandon Knight deal. The Brandon Knight. They drafted him eighth overall, and just the immediate guys right after him: uh, Kemba Walker, Jimmer Fredette, Clay Thompson. Um, you know, down a little bit at fifteen. Kawhi Leonard. Uh, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. Kenneth Freed at twenty two. Hindsight's twenty twenty. But man, any of those guys, any of those guys, Jimmy Butler, literally, Butler, any of them. literally but, anybody but Brandon. However, to be fair. If they draft Kawhi Leonard, there's no way that he is as ineffective as Brandon Knight was his rookie year, and there's no way the team is in position to draft Drummond. So you know things just work out how they work out. You got to you know take the chips as they fall or whatever that saying is. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Any case, we um, uh, judging by how far we we were going with our tangents now. It leads me to believe that perhaps we've said everything that there is to say about Greg Morrow. Is that correct? Until he resigns and we have to figure out how he actually (laughs) fits into the team. I think he'll be back. I think it'll be a three- or four-year deal. And I think Josh Smith comes off the bench and cries about it. That's my prediction. sticking to it. 
I think he comes back to just as a uh, as, as final word on the on the topic. I think he comes back to a multi year deal, and I also think that the Pistons um, uh, trade Josh Smith at the trade deadline. Yeah, I, I I think he comes back, Josh Smith. I still think it's more likely than not he's traded in the off season, but maybe that's just my hopeful attitude. But I think if he comes off the bench, he does not make waves. That that's my bold prediction is that he will quietly and Josh Smithily play off the bench for all the pluses and minuses that entails, but he doesn't become a locker room problem. Yeah, At worst, I, he becomes like a Ben Gordon type sulker, quiet. You know, Ben Gordon never openly expressed disdain, but he was obviously not a happy person for his year two and three in Detroit. And so I, I think that's probably where Smith would fall in line. But I think it's more likely than not he's moved pretty quickly. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on. I think we we exhausted that topic. Let's move on to uh, to a new feature of the podcast that we started last week. Uh, favorite fan post of the week. We had a quiet week in terms of fan posts. Uh, so let this be some uh, words of encouragement to everybody else. If you have any thoughts, put put together uh, an article. Um, put it as a, in the fan post section of Detroit Bad Boys. We'll take a look at it and possibly front page it. Um, this one is. Although technically a, a fan post, it, it came from, uh, from from someone on our staff. Uh, it came from Mike Payne. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with anything about the – actually, it doesn't have anything to do with the Pistons at all. Um, he, for his uh, – in his day job, uh, his day job, so to speak, he, he's, he's a self-employed. And he, owns, he owns and operates uh, a, a lifestyle – I'll call it a lifestyle blog, lifestyle magazine, uh, called thecoolest.com. That's C-O-O-L-I-S-T.com. Um and he put together a uh, a, a pretty cool looking documentary uh, about Oklahoma City. Um, there is a little bit of an NBA tie-in. Uh, he did have a chance to speak with uh, one of the executives from the Thunder, uh, and he basically just kind of uh, profiled Oklahoma City and um, ba- basically everything that it has to offer. It's, it's an up and coming hotspot. It's it's the uh, as Mike explained it. It's the new the new Austin. Uh, Austin has a reputation of being a a really cool um, uh, place that attracts a lot of young people, a lot of you know thriving art scene, things like that. And you know, to be perfectly honest, I, I've only it's a, it's about a 36 minute documentary, so I've only started to watch a little bit of it. But I'm gonna plug it right now and tell everybody, hey, everybody, check this out. And even has even though this has nothing to do with the Pistons, um, I'm really proud at all of the talents that uh, you know, whether it's related to to writing or, or basketball knowledge or everything like that. I'm really proud of of, of my friend Mike for for being able to put together this this big project. It's the first of hopefully many cities that he'll he'll start exploring in the series for the coolest. And it's insanely well put together. I mean, you see that within the first couple seconds, but just you know all the way through, because you can kind of imagine it. It's different from going conception of a, a project like this and actually making it a reality. It's you know so difficult. To make it come off, and it came off super well. Yeah, very well done. You can tell he is an absolute pro when it comes to this. Um, he had an entire film crew. We're not talking about something that someone did. Uh, uh, you know, he, he's not an amateur with this. Like he's definitely a pro. And this is, uh, you know, hell, I'll give him, 
I'll give his sponsor a little plug too. Uh, he he did this in conjunction with Smartwater. They're, they're helping sponsor his his project here, and, and they're the ones that are kind of enabling him to uh, uh, to go and explore these cities. And um, hopefully, uh, as he said in the comments, uh, he's talked about uh, hopefully having a chance to go and, and do something similar to this with Detroit, the city of Detroit, and kind of telling the story, not the story that the mainstream media keeps repeating, and, and not necessarily harping on all of the. Um, you know, obstacles that Detroit has to overcome, but highlighting some of the, the good things that are already happening there. Um, and, and that's something that I, I don't think a lot of uh, outsiders necessarily are hearing. Uh, so I don't want to, you know, that that is still to come. Hopefully he'll have a chance to do that. But if you appreciate uh, everything that Mike brings to the comment section and everything that Mike brings to the site, um, check it out. By all means, check it out. It's, it's cool to see, to, to put a fate. Here you are, you're getting a, uh, an extra taste of us hearing us talk, um, listening to our conversation here, and it's cool to be able to see him on camera and see him uh, and, and listen to him talk. And yeah, I, I was really happy to see that. And and now that you mention him, Smartwater, you can expect that DBB bump <laughs> from this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, uh, I was I was interested in starting a new feature on here where I would just read a Brandon Jennings tweet because they hardly ever make any sense. <laughs> but uh, so out of context, they're sometimes really funny. But this one actually makes sense. He wanted to switch his number back to number three, which he had in Milwaukee. Of course, that was Rodney Stuckey's number for a long time. He is not allowed to do it. A little breaking news for you on this podcast. He probably submitted the request in too late because you have to do that way in advance because of all the promotional marketing stuff that the NBA does. Yeah, that's true. And you know what? I will say I was actually surprised that Stucky got that number in the first place because he got that number not too long after Ben Wallace left. Ben Wallace obviously came back wearing uh, number six when he made his homecoming to Detroit. But I would like to see... I would like to see that number retired. And maybe that this can be our closing. That'll loss. be another podcast. <laughs> I would like to see that retired. So so maybe we can get the discussion going in the comments and, and we can uh, uh, carry it out in a little bit more thought out manner in a, in a future podcast. But I would like to retire all conversations about Rodney Stuckey. Does that work? <laughs> <laughs> that works but too. He's in the division. He's a threat. <laughs> yeah, he's um, a real threat. <laughs> Ouch. All right. Well, that about does it. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, if you haven't already, we are in iTunes now. We are listed in iTunes, so go ahead and subscribe. The RSS feed to listen is also, you can put it in any any of your podcast players on your phone or whatever, and every time we record an episode, you'll get it right to your phone. And, uh, you know, if, it, if, if, you're, if you enjoyed this at all, then, then hey, do us a favor and give us a, give us a nice rating. Give us a nice five-star rating on, on iTunes, and that'll help. Uh, the more reviews and the more ratings that we get, that'll help us kind of bubble up to the top so more people can, can find us and, and listen to us. And um, Yeah, that, so I'm going to go ahead and, and, and put myself out there and shamelessly ask for that. But, uh, but yeah, that, that's about it. Thanks, guys. This was fun. Yep. We'll see you next week. And I would say that, um, what was I going to say? I totally (laughs) lost my train of thought. It'll come to me.